how many times in life are you ever part of something from day zero? And we have had the gift of that opportunity largely because of Dr. Bill. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, and then later on in the pod, we sit down with Dr. Mark Biddle and Dr. Melissa Jackson, who are creating a new concept in theological education called Sophia Seminary and Farm. It's going to be a great pod. Glad you're here. Stay tuned. Hey, Missy, anything going on this week? Well, (laughs) (laughs) just a few things. I mean, we are getting closer to Christmas. Yeah, I was going to say, the biggest news in our house is that the Christmas puzzle is well underway in our house. Okay, so how many puzzles have you completed, and what is the percentage that you're on right now? I don't know. I have one puzzle out. It's very difficult, (laughs) and nobody is helping me, so there's that. Uh, What is your puzzle However, wait. I, I do have a grievance to talk about. Oh, gather around, kids. Is the airing of the grievance. Okay. So, I, you know, my Christmas puzzles are very important to me, right? I do know that. This is, you are allowed to help. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed to finish it. And as our children learned, you're not allowed to hide pieces from me. Correct. Okay. So, the other night, you were helping with the puzzle. Me? Yes. I mean, how? And you decided to cut the pieces in order to fit. Like you took a little, what are those? This is a dream, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. And I'm still mad about it. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, I I, I did decorate for Christmas this year. No, you actually didn't. I woke up and there were no decorations. Do you not remember how I was talking about in the dream world? I was, you know, I did a great job in the dream world. In the dream world, right. So this time I was horribly upset with you because you you swooped in to help me with the puzzle, which I was excited about. And then you just started cutting the pieces to go wherever you wanted them to. That makes sense to me. I mean, it totally checks out. But yeah, so I'm a little salty about that. Sorry about that. I apologize. (laughs) Uh, Folks, I don't know about you and your relationship with your significant other, but I find myself apologizing a lot for things that Dream Mitch does. Well, if Dream Mitch would just behave and do what he's asked to do, we'd be better. Uh, very, I do have another little, um, I don't know, grievance. I'll save for next week. Okay. Though. All right. So, all right. All right. Yeah. Okay. It's not a dream one, an actual real life one. So. All right. Excellent. Well, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, so what um, else is going on oh this my week gosh. besides so, puzzle working? Well, let's first start with the World Cup. I mean, it, the excitement is continuing to build. They're in the knockout stage right now. And, you know, our youngest son is home from college. He's watching it every day, getting up early to watch I mean, the game. I the crack of nine, right? <laughs> right. right. Uh, but it's really exciting. And, you know, we were traveling uh, this week and we were in an airport. And we got to see the Morocco-Spain game, or at least the very end of it. Is that who was playing? I just know the Christmas <laughs> players from the two games yesterday, right? There were Christmas elves playing against 
other <laughs> you can't teams. say that. Well, they they were in red and green. They were wearing. So they green. were running around the field. It looked yeah. like Chris. It was so festive. I loved it, yeah. and they both won. So hey, <laughs> Santa's clearly yeah. on their side. Yay for Christmas! <laughs> no, Morocco won, and it was that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because Spain is a powerhouse, and not only just within the sports world, but just in the sociopolitical world and, and, and the history regarding European colonialism and uh, you know, African oppression from that colonialism. It was just a really a cool, significant moment to see Morocco play so hard and do so well. Ended in a 0-0 tie. So after- they, went into penal- they went into overdue. Wait, I've got this. They went into extra time. Correct. At which there was still no score. Correct. So they went into PKs. Correct. After, at which Spain, right? That's what we're talking about? We're talking about Morocco and Spain. Morocco and Spain. Spain missed the first three, right? But, yeah. And it wasn't just missing them. The Morocco goalkeeper saved them. I mean, yeah. he was just incredible. It was impressive. So, yeah, it was so exciting. And I'm just so happy for Morocco. And it's an exciting time. Lots of controversy around the World Cup because it's in uh, Qatar, but, uh, and their, their history of human rights isn't that great. But the excitement of the tournament to see the world coming together, to see countries like Morocco and other countries rising uh, to this level is just really cool. And speaking of cool, there was a first at the me? World Cup this year. No, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> um, last week, and this was so significant because it was in Qatar, and again, Qatar, not the best record on human rights, especially rights of women. And last week, FIFA announced that in one of the matches, they were going to have an all-female officiating crew. That's amazing. And it was so cool, Missy. I mean, just to see uh, those referees out there uh, just doing an incredible job and the respect that the players had for them. It was just it was just wonderful to see. And, and, and especially in this setting, it was it was just great. I enjoyed watching yeah. those exciting games. Yeah. And then after the game was finished, we watched the returns start to come in from the great state of Georgia. That was a that was a little intense. Little intense. Yeah, well, I, just back and forth. I mean, talk about a soccer match. It was like back and forth. 50, 51, 49, 48, 45. Commercial break. It felt like the Saturday Night Live skit a few weeks ago <laughs> yeah. from the midterms. It was so funny <laughs> listening to the comment. But I will say, you know what helps? <laughs> it helps keep that anxiety uh, uh, at bay. No, no, that's right. And, and taking shots of whiskey. <laughs> I was not. Guys, I do not shoot whiskey. <laughs> Uh, no, it was it was exciting, and right to the end, uh, Senator, now Senator elect, but current Senator uh, Reverend Doctor Raphael Warnack uh, is now the newly elected senator for the his first full time uh, full term full term uh, service also full time the, yeah full time full term in the Senate, and it's just it was really exciting to see. I mean, the state of Georgia is, is really an interesting place. I mean, because you think about, you know, they've got two Democratic senators now in a very red state traditionally, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, people are saying, you know, is Georgia, you know, is it turning blue? And, you know, you look at that evidence and you say yes. But then, you know, you look back to last month and probably the rock star of the Democratic Party, Stacey Abrams, gets beat handily uh, by Republican Governor Kemp. And so what's interesting about watching 
these uh, elections unfold, especially in Georgia, is that if you think that our federal and local government is confused and and just trying to figure out a way forward, I mean, the electric is doing the same. I mean, just you know, even in a state like Georgia, which is traditionally red, but also the state that produced Jimmy Carter. We don't want to forget that. It's just it's just an interesting time. And I think the country is, is trying to figure it out. Maybe we're getting past this Trumpism. It's still there. Uh, I, I don't want to be naive to think it's gone or away. It's still there. There's still uh, some lingering supporters of his as well. I don't, I don't think lingering. I think there's more than that. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's true. De- definitely not lingering. But what do you think of Herschel Walker's concession speech? You know, I, I listened to it and I sat there and thought, where was this Herschel Walker? Who was that? Yeah. He was just, he was great in his concession speech. Talked about his belief in America and encouraging Americans not to give up. It was just very well done. And I just kept scratching my head and thinking, where was this Herschel Walker during the election? I don't know. Worried about vampires and werewolves from what I hear. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Uh, so it was, you know, it was an interesting uh, process. Um, you know, we'll see where we go from here. Uh, the split or the Senate and the House are split uh, beginning in January, uh, but lots of things still to happen at the end of this year. We are hopeful. The House just took up the uh, Marriage uh, Act that would solidify same-sex marriage in this country. Uh, so we're excited about that. Try to get that thing signed uh, before January one. So keep your fingers crossed there. So you know what we're most excited about? What is that? No more political ads. <laughs> you're so naive. <laughs> so naive. Actually, you're right, because I already saw um, down our street already, there's a big, uh, not a billboard, but a campaign sign on the side of the road for one of the city councilmen here. So yeah. it's like, oh, here we go. Yeah. I, I threw it from my mouth a little bit when I saw it. Yeah, I might have to. I've never, I've never committed, I don't know, committed, done, I don't know, vandalism, but... <laughs> times it's super tempting so super tempting super tempting so lots going on in the world um you know i mean we don't really have time to talk about uh, a lot of supreme court cases that were argued this week uh particularly the case dealing with the graphic designer and the court taking up that case to decide once again if these privately held businesses are allowed to discriminate based upon a closely held religious belief or that of freedom of speech. Uh, and these are dangerous, dangerous. And I want to say this, they're complex because I understand the nuances behind them and they're difficult cases. Uh, you don't want to force anybody to do anything that they don't want to do, but at the same time, you've got to be fair and just when you're in the marketplace, because if we're not careful, we're going to be right back where we were uh, and telling, you know, people they can't sit at the counter because they're of a certain religion or they're gay or they're mm-hmm. divorced or, you know, whatever uh, the case is. So we've got to be very careful when it comes to that. So Supreme Court has heard this. It looks like they're probably going to side with the graphic designer as they did with the cake baker. Again, I know these issues are very complex from a legal standpoint. From a faith standpoint, Missy, it appalls me. The 
that these individuals say that they are Christian and they are acting in this way. This, for me, is the most egregious behavior in this entire situation. I understand the legalities of it. I understand the facts of the case, and I know those are complex and difficult. But as a person of faith, it appalls me that people would treat other people like that. That is not what Jesus told us to do. He told us to love people. So lots going on in the world, uh, but you know, you and I got to sit down with uh, a couple of professors this week. In fact, I had to sharpen my pencil <laughs> a little right. bit. I got a little intimidated, uh, but we sat down with Dr. Mark Biddle and one of his associates who are professors at Sophia Theological Seminary and Farm, and they're thinking outside the box. Uh, you know, they live their careers out in a traditional setting and seminary. And then they said, you know, let's try to do something different. And so this interview was really interesting from the standpoint that they are using a new model for theological education. And it's more of a kind of a communal model as they farm together and live together, as well as do theology together. So I think it's a pretty good interview. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got two very special guests with us. Dr. Mark Biddle is the Dean of Faculty at Sophia Theological Seminary. Dr. Biddle holds a BA from Stanford University, an MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a THM from Rushlikan Baptist Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Theology from the University of Zurich. Dr. Biddle began his teaching career at Carson Newman College, where he also directed the Honors Program. After almost a decade, he joined the faculty at the Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond as a professor of Old Testament. Dr. Melissa A. Jackson is the board chair of Sophia and a faculty member. She is a North Carolina native. She received a BA from the University of North Carolina, MDiv from Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond, and a Doctor of Philosophy and Hebrew Bible from the University of Oxford. She was ordained in the gospel ministry by Fellowship Baptist Church in Americus, Georgia. Between her stints as a student, Dr. Jackson worked for nonprofit organizations and was a youth minister in two congregations. Soon after completing her doctorate, she returned to her alma mater, BTSR, where she was on faculty for seven years. Mark, Melissa, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Very good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about Sophia. Combining theological education and farming seems, let's just say, both unusual, but also natural. <laughs> so tell us the, uh, tell the audience about this concept of Sophia and how they came together, these two yeah. ideas. I think a big word to use would be confluence, uh, because um, it has, uh, it, Sophia has a number of tributaries uh, that uh, gave uh, uh, flow into it. Uh, in my own case, um, we didn't start, the farm idea came along, but as you said, when it did come along, we all said, yes, this is exactly what, how we, this fits in perfectly. For me, it began with the question of uh, um, the theological curriculum and, and how pedagogical questions and how uh, the church is changing uh, uh, and what ministry will need to look like uh, as we go forward. 
And I, I frequently say that I belong to the generation uh, that will not take the church into its new place and its new directions. I, I, and I do not have the wisdom. I, I, one of my uh, uh, one of my graduate school supervisors used to say that I could analyze the heck out of a problem, but wasn't very good with solutions. And and so I can uh, go on and on about how I think that the church is facing difficulties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I believe that God has a purpose for the body of Christ in the world, and the church is not about to die. It's just going through some rebirth pains. Mm-hmm. Now, what is going to be reborn as, I don't know. I do know that to prepare, I do think that it will need a prepared ministry, an educated ministry, and probably that ministry those ministers will be facing challenges that are as difficult as any uh, clergy have ever faced. So how do you prepare people for an unknown future? And um, I came, my, I, I did my undergrad degree at Sanford in an honors program that was interdisciplinary. And then I directed one at Carson Newman that was largely interdisciplinary. And, and I have often thought that the way we teach the traditional curriculum in seminary, which as you know, is, by discipline and siloed, as though the Old Testament wasn't the source for the new and the new didn't come out of the old and the new and the old together aren't the source for the the theology of the church and the theology of the church didn't influence the history of the church and so on and so forth until you get down to today where uh, the need to understand that long trajectory uh, is very important Mm -hmm. in answering the questions that we face today. So I, you know, for years, not just toward the end of BTSR, but for a decade or more before that, if I were was driving down the country roads going to preach at some church on some Sunday, I would be thinking about, boy, if I had my way, we'd redo this thing. Sure. You know, we'd redesign the whole shooting match. And we want to talk a little bit about the importance of kind of the communal concept here in a second. But Melissa, um, this idea of combining theological education with uh, with farming, farming is just not, I mean, a lot of it is to bring students and professors together, but there's, it's also a, a, another funding model because as we know, our institutions are suffering financially. A lot of times our theological education is funded through denominational entities, uh, through you know, not only uh, tuition and, 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 and grants and foundations, but congregational. All of that is starting to dwindle. So this model of combining theological education with farming has some very practical uh, elements to it. So can you, can, can you speak to that kind of financial arm around it? Sure. And so I'm not sure why um, Dr. Biddle says that he's not good at solutions because sort of the, the most practical first step that we took as a small group starting this was that he had a double-sided piece of paper. Uh-huh. One side had a list, challenges facing theological education. And on the other side was a proposal for a model that meets these challenges. And so the top two or three li- items on that list of challenges revolved around sustainability specifically financial sustainability. So one of the things we're trying to be very clear about is that this paired up model of a seminary and a farm is for financial sustainability, that the farm is a business and the proceeds from the business sustain the operating costs of the seminary, which is very different than saying we have a farm that is 
simply a learning lab for theological education, or we have a farm that's growing vegetables for donation. Tithing is part of the operations of the farm, but the farm is the financial piece to support the seminary. So it is foundationally built on the idea that the best way for this community to be be self to be sustaining sustainable is to be self-sustaining so that those of us who are part of the community put in the work into the farm that then supports the work of the seminary so they're bound together but the farm is the financial stability for the seminary and so it's not a foundation it's not susceptible to the same kinds of ebbs and flows that you know the stock market or whatever right. um, denominational support like any pieces of that that come into the seminary our imagination is that we can use those things to expand the work of the seminary we don't have to use those funds to keep the lights on mm-hmm. So then this, the, the kind of next layer effect is the direct effect it has on the students, that they then don't have tuition fees and housing costs because the farm proceeds are sustaining that. And so then students don't graduate with any more debt than they came in with. I mean, we can't control that, obviously. But we are then, as part of our own care for the community, again, we're helping the students um, leave financially in better financial shape than they might have been in a, in a more traditional environment. I love that model. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it makes so much, so much sense in today's age. Now, Mark, this may be the most important question of the entire interview. So oh dear. <laughs> what is the crop that you will be growing at the farm? Because if you say wheat for hops to make beer or grapes to make wine, I will fill out an application today. Well, <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the answer is uh, once, you know, I, it's hard to describe how I used to work confluence before. Once we started thinking along these lines, everything just sort of, it was, it was like popcorn popping. Yeah, this will fit and that'll fit. And we, we are, we are, grow, we are what used to be called in my part of the world where I grew up in Alabama, a truck farm. We're growing vegetables. Yeah. Just good, hearty, healthy vegetables. Uh, because uh, we don't want to be a monoc- what's called a monoculture. We don't do monoculture agriculture because right. that's that's uh, you know the cash crop kind of thing. We're we're trying to be um, uh, the whole notion of creation and creation care and creation th- theology and wisdom theology. Very important to everything we we do. Sustainability, sustainability, and um, all of it. Not just sustainable, but healthy. You know. Not just healthy, but even pretty, if possible. We've grown some beautiful vegetables this year. I've just just very been very pleased on the case. So we we want to model what is wholesomeness and healthiness in in the food we grow and how we grow it. We're we're we won't be certified organic. That's expensive. Sure. But we're using strictly organic principles. Good. So we uh, we we, we want to do we want to be good stewards. That's another big word for us: stewardship. We want to be good stewards of God's creation and uh, uh, good stewards of the nutritious food we grow for people and so on and so forth. So in addition to farming, obviously the students will be living communally. So Melissa, can you speak to why the concept of communal living is so important to theological development? 
Sure. I mean, one of the things we keep saying over and over, and I want to stress that here, is we don't imagine ourselves as in competition with other institutions that are educating people for ministry, because this is something different, and it's not going to be for everybody, and that's okay. And so for us, what we understand is that in order to be farmers, we have to be in proximity, and that we can't do this kind of seminary in remotely. So that left us with this idea that we would have our students in residence and that we would be in community and how would we then build community. And I think we, in a lot of ways, we don't know how that's going to unfold for us. And we're okay with that. We are ready to um, live into this and have been since day one, really. And, um, so that's important to us, to, to be able to be responsive to the needs of those in the community. But what we anticipate are things like, for example, when in, in more traditional seminary settings, students have an advisor who helps guide them through particular pieces of their seminary journey. But we're imagining that there's probably no better advisor-student relationship than the one that's going to develop sweating under the sun picking <laughs> tomatoes together. Yeah. Right? So we expect that to be community building in our midst just by virtue of being in proximity to other to one another and working together. That always builds community. And we're also trying to create rhythms in the week that would also uh, help build community. So regular gatherings for worship and meals in addition to just the daily work on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly understanding also that in our current divided society, let's just be plain about this, that one of the ways students who are going to be ministers can be better ministers if they're formed in close-knit community, because that's also a place where you learn how to navigate difference as well as navigate what binds you together. Mm -hmm. And so for students to be in community with one another and to begin to hammer out some of their differences together will be a good learning space for them to then be in churches and other kinds of ministry environments where their part of their responsibility is to bring people together. So we see that as a significant aspect of community building at Sophia, um, both what happens within the community and how that then is a, is, is a model for them in ministry. It's a wonderful concept. It's it's reimagining theological education. But Mark, in some ways, it's also going back to a little bit of our roots, especially this communal concept. Uh, you know, you you uh, did some doctoral work in Zurich. I, we were there at the Baptist World Alliance not long ago, and we went over to, uh, to to Zwingli's church and toured it. And they talked about how many students he had living there at the church, and they would he would teach them Greek and he would teach them systematic theology right there together as they live together. And the importance of that communal conversation was really just as important as uh, what they were learning in the classroom, but that theological conversation helped helped bring about their theological formation as ministers. Absolutely. Yeah, I've experienced this myself in a couple ways. You, you mentioned Ruslan, where I did a THM. When I was there, I remember my very first semester, there were um, 49 students, I think it was, uh, representing 43 different nationalities. 
So we had Japanese Baptists, and Spanish Baptists, and German Baptists, and, you know, Israeli Baptists. You run the gamut, almost the whole world was there. And one of the things I soon discovered uh, was that I, I went and uh, as a Southern Baptist still. I discovered within just a matter of weeks how much of my um, religious identity was Southern and how much of it was Baptist. Um, because if you said anything past, um, the church consists of baptized believers, you wouldn't have agreement with everybody in that student body. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the thing. I mean, uh, the Polish Baptists wouldn't play old maids for fear that someone would think they were gambling. <laughs> and and it just, we would have to have this big community get together just about every year in October, November, and sort out the tensions that had arisen sure. because a new crop of students had come in and did not know the risk kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that learning in community uh, is just absolutely fundamental. We, 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 America is not as culturally diverse as Rusakan was, but it's pretty culturally diverse and getting more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for our students to sit down across from people who don't do it the same way they did growing up mm-hmm. and for whom Baptistism or for whom Christianity means something slightly different, I think that's how else do you learn? How Absolutely. You learn? And that is another uh, important facet of Sophia is because when you uh, go to the webpage, uh, which is Sophia Sim, right? S-E-M.org. Right. Um, when you go to the website, one of the core values is that while you are Baptist in your tradition, you talk about being Baptist with a little b. And so, Melissa, talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Because I know, you know, we, we look at the church and we look at kind of ecumenicism as it's growing, um, you know, and these traditions, while they're important to us, are becoming less important to the emerging generations. So that that articulation, that core value captured, I think it's probably true of everybody, that a single sentence behind that is a really long conversation to get to those seven or eight words. So that's true of that particular core value and the way it's articulated. Because when we first started to talk about who we want to be, we first had to ask the question, who we, who are we? Mm-hmm. And we looked around the table <laughs> and we said, well, regardless without regard to what we aspire to be. When we look around this table, we are all folks who came from some kind of Baptist background. So that's who we are. And we can own that in some way and also know that as part of that identity, we want to, we aspire to, we will work hard to move beyond those boundaries to be ecumenical and interfaith. Mm And so far, the main place where we've been able to do that is in building our trustee board. Um, but the whole, the notion is little B Baptists, we borrowed from um, James McClendon, who was, um, if it's not too much of an oxymoron for all of us, was a Baptist theologian. And has written, he wrote in his lifetime three volumes that comprised his particular version of Baptist uh, theology. And very early on, he articulates this notion of little b Baptists as his way to capture something that is universal among Baptists, when in fact, what this is kind of the articulation of what Mark was just speaking about, that Baptists share something in common, but once you probe beyond that initial layer, what's in common begins to fall away. And and any of us who are of an age understand that dynamic in Baptist life in the South of the U.S. So what does it mean for us to be Baptist, but to 
see that as part of our identity, but not our defining, the defining aspect of our identity. So we're leaning on McClendon's language about little B Baptist, that there are a few things that hold us together, Mm -hmm. but that we then exist in a, in a very diverse range. Yeah. I love that. And Mark, this is going to be somewhat controversial and I don't mean, I, I don't mean it to be. But I think this is an extremely important question that a lot of theological educators are trying to answer right now. And Sophia is standing at the cusp of how to address this. All of us went to seminary with somewhat of an expectation to work in an institution, whether that was a church, whether that was a seminary, whether that was you know some you know, denominational work, we were being trained to kind of prop up the denominational institutions that we were a part of. As you well know, over 50% of theological students right now, or seminary students, have no, I have no desire whatsoever to work inside an a institution. Mm-hmm. How is Sophia going to address that? Is the curriculum that you're developing going to be more practical in nature? Not that <laughs> theological education was very was ever impractical, but to address this idea that many of your students will have no desire whatsoever to work inside a local church or denominational entity, but would rather live out in the world being communal priests or communal pastors or ministers or public theologians. So speak to that, if you will. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all very acutely aware of that issue and, and sensitive to it. And we, the, we've designed our curriculum. We, uh, we address that question in, I think, at least three ways. I'm going to ask Melissa to... Uh, Supplement me here if I don't get everything quite right. One is, again, in the very nature of the curricular design, uh, we, we, we are going to, everything will be team taught in, in, in seminars, uh, not around, we won't start with Genesis 1, we'll start with a big idea. Let's, let's say creation because it's so important to us. And we'll read some Old Testament texts, Genesis 1, Proverbs 8. We'll read some New Testament texts, John 1, Romans 8. Romans 1 and 2, uh, and we'll look at some church history and some systematic theology. That's that's in what we could think of as the big seminar. A second seminar will pick right up with where that left off and talk about how is creation important to Christian faith, creation care, important in Christian faith. What are the questions that are being asked today? What are the means for addressing it? And continue on through. So our curriculum is designed not to prepare people for a specific kind of job, but to prepare people with the right ways to think about things and with the right information. And the right, um, one of my favorite lines from um, T.S. Eliot, I'll always butcher it, but it goes something like that. In all of the data, where's the knowledge? In all of the knowledge, where's the wisdom? Oh, I love that. And we want, we want, you have to have data, you have to have knowledge, but we named the place Sophia because we want our students to leave with a kind of wisdom that they couldn't, they wouldn't normally get somewhere else so that they can address those very questions. You're out here. There's no, the seminary didn't give you a, a, a game plan for what kind of ministry you're going to be in. We, we prepared you to think like a theologian. We prepared you to put it into application. Now, 
we'll call us if we can help you. We're going to be praying for you and watching you and proud of you. But there's the world in front of you. Go. The other thing uh, we're doing, I noticed this in my years uh, teaching in the former institution, that students uh, had to do a one-year internship, and they usually save that for the end. I don't know how many times students would come to me and say, boy, Dr. Bill, I wish I had paid better attention because I remember you getting up on the table and jumping up and down about something. And I didn't know why you thought it was so important. I have a sneaking suspicion. I'm discovering why I should have paid attention to that now that I'm in my uh, internship set. So we're going to have our students, they're going to have an internship for all three years. And they will be, we're going to give them the option. We're still working out some details there, but we're giving them the option to be in some nonprofits if that's what they think they want to taste. Right. Uh, so, so that they can be forming their own. Uh, we, we do not want to tell them what they're going to be. Sure. We want to partner with them in discovering the, their ministry and in discovering our identity as ministers. Yeah. And we're just excited about that notion. Uh, we're, we're doing that even in the uh, application process. And we're having interviews with them and talking with them about who we are, where they are, what their strengths are. And there's no right answer. We want to help them find how they can serve God in today's world. Right. So the application process. Right. Uh, where are we in this process? Because I know that you're currently, it's an open enrollment right now. Uh, That's right. For your first we class. So tell us a little we, bit about uh, what, how, how, people, how people can find out more about Sophia, how they can apply uh, to become a student there. The basic information is that it's an online application that they that any student who's interested can access by going to the seminary website, which is Sophia Sim. That's sophiaph.org. Mm-hmm. And then there's a there's a tab there. I think it's students where they can get a lot of information. We're we're very open about this uh, process, so all the steps are listed there. There's nothing hidden about it. And we are accepting applications. Where so there is, is the seminary located? I'm not sure I've heard that. On a farm? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like Hogwarts, our, Missy. I mean, you you, you, yeah, you have to, yeah, it, it takes a train there. It's, it's really magical. You're so, assuming I've read Harry Potter. No, I know you haven't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you look on the website, our mailing address is the postal box in Richmond. The farm itself is located in Dinwiddie. Virginia, which is about 20 miles south of Petersburg, Virginia. Southwest, southwest. A little bit, yes, southwest of Petersburg, which is south of Richmond. The metropolis, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is a small place, um, beautiful and small. Um, Yeah, so that's where we are. And this is a whole another kind of avenue of conversation, but we are, uh, we'll be, We've been in a two-year phased purchase of the property, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a beautiful story that is its own kind of narrative, but um, that is coming to an end. We should be closing on the purchase of the property in 2023 early, so that's we're already, I, I always say it's the now and future home of Sophia, because oh. we've been farming there now for over two years. We started that during the pandemic, because we could do it safely, and then through the process of discernment with the current owner, um, he's also our farm steward, is um, for that to be Sophia's home, as it already is, but in a more significant way. A legal way. And legal, yes. <laughs> uh, so the app, and what, what I was just going to add to the conversation about application 
curriculum and how we understand this process of discerning a future beyond seminary is this idea of collaboration that we understand as faculty and leadership of Sophia, that we have an enormous responsibility to create structure around students through which they can learn, but that that's a collaboration with students as well. So having them in internships for the entire time, but also building a lot of space into the curriculum for them to do their own research. Mm -hmm. So it's a more European model where students will do a lot of independent research in advance of the seminars so that the seminars then become an opportunity for us to expand on what we've all learned in that process. And so that time they have to do their own work, their own research will be only semi-structured to give them an opportunity to kind of ferret around in there and find the places where their imagination and their energy gets ignited and to have an opportunity then to continue to investigate and write and think and read and talk about what interests them with the expectation being that once we get all those different thoughts in a room together, that they can really just ping off of each other and, and have a very vibrant learning environment that is driven by the students as they're in the process of finding out how they want to live out their call after ministry. Cause I think this was part of one of the things you said very first is that we, we know that the church is going to look different and if it's even going to look like the church, but we don't know what that is going to be. Right. And so we need to prepare students to be the people who are going to make those changes. Shape that, shape that future. Yeah. Yep. Rather Absolutely. than try to decide what it's going to be well, and push them toward it in some way. Well, it is a great concept. Dr. Mark Biddle, Dr. Melissa Jackson, Sophia Theological Seminary and Farm, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you the very best. If you want to find out more about the seminary and this incredible new opportunity, please go to sophiasim.org. You can find out more about uh, the school, the farm, and you can apply. Make sure to apply because this is going to be a great opportunity. Uh, it be the first class. How exciting is that? Well, Mark and Melissa, before we let you go, we've got one last question that we ask all of our guests, and I'm going to let Missy take it away. So Dr. Biddle and Dr. Jackson, thank you for being with us today. As you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and the work that you're doing, what is your more to tell? And we'll start with Melissa. Well, we're, we're in the process at the end of the year, a series of emails talking about this advent line, the, the already and the not yet. Mm. And so for us, I feel like the more to tell is that everything is kind of stretched out before us. And the beauty of what we're doing, how many times in life are you ever part of something from day zero? Mm -hmm. And we have had the gift of that opportunity largely because of Dr. Biddle. And so for us, there's just this brilliant thing out there that's being born every day. And I know that for me, I'm waiting to see what that more is um, as it really just unfolds from here. Yeah. When I think about what's more to tell, I, I, mean, it, I think back about uh, what was really fundamental for me personally. Now, I'm going to, this is very personal for me. When the former institution folded, <laughs> I felt like, but I haven't taught my last student. I, I am not finished teaching. And I'm just living for uh, that, that first seminar uh, when we have students uh, and we're doing this thing that we've dreamed about now for three years. 
and, and we have some folks already accepted. They're bright, bright, in creative, energetic young people, and I'm just so excited. We have some more in the pipeline that I just I want to help them fill out their application so that we can get it in quickly enough. Uh, I just cannot. That that is for me. That when we have students down there and we're teaching, that's that's the thing that I'm just so looking forward to. That is wonderful. Well, both of you, thank you so much. Now, Mark, I have to say, I have known of you for years and years now. I have known you as a scholar, a theologian, a professor, a profound thinker. But when I went to the website and saw you in jeans and T-shirt and a farmer's hat and your hands dirty, it was like, yes, that's theological education. If you could just throw some manure in there, that would complete yeah, the well, package. Well, well, listen, listen I, 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 people have said to me things along those lines, and I re, aren't you a professor? And I remind them that I, will, I became a professor when I was 29, that's 30 or just about 30 when I got my degree. But those first 30 years of my life, I grew up in rural North Alabama, hauling hay and cleaning out barns. I mean, you know, I, I am a farmer. I became a professor. So there you go. I love that. I love I'm pretty that. sure there's a preacher. V- oh, there's got to be. Joke in there Absolutely. <laughs> well, both of you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Again, for those who are interested, go to sophiasim.org, read more about the Seminarian Farm. And if you're interested, sign up, begin the application process. You got a little break here during the holiday season. So get that application in. Thank you both. Yes, thank, thank you. you thank you. Talk about thinking outside the box and farming and doing theology. Wow. Okay, I'm out on both counts. Let's just be honest. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I, I'm not a farmer. I think it's a it, it's such an interesting model and and something we've we've talked to many people um, in our world lately about um, sustainability and mm-hmm. about you know trying to find ways to bring in entrepreneur entrepreneurialism onto um, <laughs> business ideas. <laughs> Any opportunity to figure out a way to provide education to students um, without them having to go into debt mm-hmm. these days is a-okay with me. And what an experience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you think about, the, and Sophia is not the only uh, school out there trying to do theological education and education at large differently. Uh, and some of these concepts are just so new and innovative, but they're they're not, it's not just an educational uh, moment in one's life as they, they learn about facts and formulas and philosophy. They're turning this time into an experience, a true experience that's helping shaping not only minds, but life's life in general. So um, you went to seminary. I did. Years ago. Years and years ago. So my first question, what in, you know, 30 seconds or less, what were you expecting when you went there. Oh my gosh. Well, you do know I went to seminary a flaming fundamentalist. I'm not sure you can use those two words together. Is that an oxymoron? I don't think oxymoron is the right word either. I just think. <laughs> a contradictory in terms. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, not. Uh, no, I, I went, I was a good little fundamentalist. I 
you know, read, listened to Rush Limbaugh, uh, Pat Robertson, all of those characters, Jerry Falwell, they were my heroes. And <laughs> really gonna have to stop. I know. I know people <laughs> are pulling off <laughs> to turn off the podcast right now. Uh, but yeah, I was I was a fundamentalist. And so when I went into seminary, I just thought it was gonna be, you know, like a uh, like felt boards. No, not felt board. But I just thought it was going to be a uh, Bible study on steroids okay. and that they were going to tell me everything about the Bible that they knew and how to interpret it and how to apply it because, you know, they they knew all the truth because I'd heard that for 22 years. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would be given biblical passages to tell you to submit to my authority, Missy. How'd that work out for you? It did not. Oh, okay. Just wondering. And this is what I mean by experience, because I had such misconceptions going into seminary of what it was and what it was supposed to be, that I remember during the orientation, Dr. Russell Dilday, who was the president at the time, told us this, we are not here to teach you facts. We're here to teach you how to think and to draw your own conclusions. You mean not alternative facts? No. Oh, you know, I mean, it, it, what was interesting is not, it wasn't about just specific facts or specific, specific text or memorization of scripture. It was about teaching context in order to read the scripture, to understand it in its historical context, to understand how that played out over the 2000 years of Christian history and what that looks like today. Their job as they told us, was not to indoctrinate us, but to educate us in order for us to think for ourselves and draw our own conclusion. So aside from learning that seminary is not, in fact, the best dating pool, (laughs) (laughs) much to your chagrin, right? What did you actually learn? Oh my gosh. Well, it started that first semester. When I walked into uh, a chapel service and Dr. Boo Heflin, who was an Old Testament professor, uh, stood up to give the first of the semester address. And he began his sermon by saying everything that I had been affirmed regarding the inequality of the sexes in the Bible that women should submit to men and that women were somehow inferior to the male species. And this was the uh, order of God. And, you know, so the first six minutes of his sermon, I'm sitting here thinking, amen, this, I mean, this is, this is why I came here, you know, to, to, you know, to, <laughs> to, to, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he just, he rocked my world. He took each one of those points and he deconstructed it. And he said, this is why this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And by golly, he used the Bible to do it. And he started talking about texts that none of my preachers had ever talked about. He started looking at these texts in historical contexts that I had never been taught about. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that sermon, which was about 20 minutes, I sat there in Truett Auditorium, just flabbergasted and hurt because I felt like I had been lied to all of my life. Hmm. And I knew at that moment 
my world would have been was going to be different because I did not trust anything that I had learned. And so I went on a quest. And it was a deep quest for my own theological reflection and formation. And I didn't trust anybody else to do it. I did you know, trust individuals like Dr. Heflin, uh, other professors that I encountered at Southwestern, and just began this, this personal journey of trying to find out who I really was because all of a sudden I realized who I wasn't. And I wasn't that raving fundamentalist who walked through the doors of Southwestern Seminary. And then the spring rolled around, and probably one of the most influential moments in my career and personal uh, faith journey happened. And the trustees at Southwestern Seminary fired Dr. Russell Vilde. And not only did they fire him the night before, they had affirmed him as president. The next day they fired him, but they did not just fire him. They locked his doors to his office and escorted him off of the premises back to the presidential house that he and his wife lived in. They treated him like a criminal. Well, we found out in tidbits in the years to come why why they were motivated to lock the office. Yeah. <laughs> and that's another story. And but yeah, for another day. Yeah. But I just I will never forget standing there as Dr. Dilde walked by being escorted out of the rotunda at Southwestern and outdoors thinking, what is going on? And then these fundamentalist pastors coming to the podium uh, just hours later, thinking they were going to be treated like heroes for getting rid of this bastion of liberalism, which if anybody who knows Dr. Russell Dilday, he is not a liberal. And I sat there and listened to them talk and demonized Dr. Dilday. And I just sat there in my seat and said, you're liars. You are liars. And the words of Jesus kept echoing in my head, you brood of vipers. And that's what they were. And I, I knew at that moment, as I did when Dr. Heflin delivered that sermon, that my life was about to radically change. And it did big time. And are you better for it? I am freer for it. Mm-hmm. And I personally would like to think I'm better for it, but I think I am freer for it. I think I have benefited from it from the standpoint that it's given me a thirst for discovery mm-hmm. and that I am a denier of certainty. I think doubt is a positive thing. Because when we doubt, we become curious in the words of... Ted Lasso, the other favorite prophet of our show. <laughs> we, should have, we should have pictures hung up we of all of our favorite prophets. Believe, we have Moira believe. Rose and we have Ted Lasso. Who yeah. else can we add to that? Oh my gosh, we'll so many. Think. Give us some suggestions. Yeah. Um, so it, it sent me down this road of curiosity and to question. And I believe in a God that doesn't mind me questioning him or her. And getting angry, asking hard questions, at times doubting divine providence. And to be quite honest with you also, sometimes I just don't believe. And I get through it. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm free enough to say that's a healthy thing. Right. And God loves me no matter when I believe in her or when I do not believe in him. And that is a healthy place, I think. I agree. So, so you know, seminary experience, university experience, experiences at large, look for those moments in your life that can be transformative because they're out there. I'm just glad we got rid of those pleated corduroy pants from seminary days. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had some green. I mean, man, they oh look sharp. <laughs> One for every day of the week, you guys. <laughs> I mean, I had my corduroy uh, pleated oh. pants and my uh, my sweaters. The oh, the sweater vests. <laughs> sweater vests. Yeah. Oh, you guys. I, and, I, my sur- and my Superman curl. Yes, you, you did that. have a great Superman curl. <laughs> That's what you fell in love with. I mean, I can oh, bring, I can bring well, that. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far. Let's be honest. I fell in love with your mother's sheet cake. <laughs> That's I wanted true. that recipe real That's bad. True. I did. Pro- I proposed over the sheet cakes. You did, <laughs> and it did not disappoint. It did not. <laughs> the marriage, on the other hand, the oh, verdict's still, still out on that one. But yeah. Uh, well, you know, it, it's been a it's been a historic week. Lots going on. I appreciate uh, uh, Sophia coming on and talking about what they're doing in theological education, and uh, it's been a, a good time. So I appreciate uh, all of the discussion that you and I have had, the discussion we had with the folks from Sophia, and we're going into the holiday season. We've got some great guests coming up in the future. We're already starting to book guests in January, so you better get your reader spectacles back on. <laughs> Plus, also, it's, it is the holiday season, which adds stress, which is sure to add a great list of grievances oh to come gosh. to the pod, whether uh, real or dream uh, um, grievances. So I will keep my list. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, thanks uh, for joining us this week, and uh, we'll see you back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>